1: Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at the Paranoid Strain. That's all one word at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Then in 1973, the supposedly non-fiction book Sybil,
0: which was eventually turned into a hugely influential 1976 TV movie starring Sally Field,
1: kicked off a wave of mostly young mostly women coming to believe that they had multiple personality disorder as a result of repressed trauma. And the most important book spawned from that wave was, actually, let's bring back our other expert, Justin Sledge.
0: How excited are you to have two different simultaneous experts?
1: I'm. Uncomfortable describing my level of excitement, Dana. Here, Dr. Sledge fills in the story of the 1980 bestseller that most directly impacted the satanic panic phenomenon.
2: Michelle remembers as a book written by a psychiatrist and his patient who eventually became his wife. You can already begin to see that something's off in this. This patient experienced what we would now call repressed memories. And those repressed memories, which her psychiatrist very actively was involved in helping to recover, This recovered memory stuff also plays a big role in the UFO community, and it has a really problematic history there as well. What ends up happening is that Michelle remembered that in the 1950s, she was the victim of horrifying abuse at the hands of her father and a giant coven of Satanists. Everything from sexual abuse to eating babies, you know, the the things that one imagines from the satanic panic, just all kinds of horrible stuff having horns and a tail sewn onto her body and then ripped off forced abortions and all kinds of just dreadful. It's a horrifying read in that way. Michelle remembers argued that she remembered all this. She was able to recover these memories. And in the process of recovering these memories, and by the way, the therapies that they use to recover these memories are completely debunked. We now know without a doubt, you can imprint memories on people, false memories. And this can be very, very, very mentally scarring to people. And also, we can cross-check what happened in terms of who her father really was, and why are her sisters not mentioned in any of this? And she says she was taken in some satanic rituals that lasted for like 50 days, but we don't ever see her being checked out of school or missing school when this kind of abuse was alleged to be happening. So there's just really good reason to believe that none of it happened. She also was converted to Catholicism in one of her therapy sessions, which is also her psychiatrist's religion, which... Again, converting people to a religion during a therapy session. There's a lot of red flags in this.
1: We're going to come back to this question of recovered memories shortly, but the important thing to note here is that Michelle remembers had the effect of sprouting up similar recovered memory scenarios from psychiatric patients across the country.
0: Almost exclusively women, as it turns out.
1: Who, when the same psychiatric practices were applied to them, started remembering abuse scenarios similar to the titular Michelle's.
0: Similar, that is, both in the content and in the total lack of any evidence that the recovered memory crimes even happened.
1: The ground in the early 80s was thus well seated for the full-blown nationwide panic attack that was soon to begin. And so Ms. Nathan takes us through the first big stories that would eventually balloon, balloon into a continent-spanning hysteria.
3: Mary Barber was a woman in Kern County, California, which is where Bakersfield is, north of uh, L.A., and she was the step-grandmother to a couple of little girls whose mother, when she'd been a teenager, actually had been molested by a close family member. In addition to that, Marianne clearly was hospitalized right around the time that this was going on. She had been in a mental hospital. Anyway, for one reason or another, Mary Ann was so obsessed with the idea that these kids had been sexually abused that she started doing very close examinations of their genitalia and questioning them all the time. And they they were very young girls, keeping them up all night and herself staying up all night for days on end. And her ideations about what had happened just got weirder and weirder. And then she eventually contacted the authorities in Kern County and told them that these little girls had been molested. And the more attention that they paid to this, the more rococo and sort of bizarre Marianne stories got. And eventually, these accusations not only were taken very seriously, and the immediate family was accused, but then a bunch of neighbors and friends of the little girl's parents were also accused. And after a little while, it was a full-blown ritual abuse, not daycare, but neighborhood case where the girls were supposed to be tied up from books to the ceiling and sex parties. And that was, as far as we could tell, the earliest case where these accusations were taken very seriously in a criminal justice context. And a whole bunch of people were put on trial and a whole bunch of people were convicted and sentenced to just hundreds and hundreds of years of imprisonment.
1: Even if the case that Marianne Barber's delusions had initiated had been the only one of its kind, the impact would have been horrific. But of course it wasn't. The book explains that more than a hundred communities had child sex abuse ring accusations between 1983 and 1987. And these stories infiltrated the culture to the point that in 1992, Joan goddamn Baez... 60s folk icon released the very earnest song, Play Me Backwards, about adults dressed as Mexicans slaughtering a baby, removing its organs, and making other people play with them.
0: That can't
1: be real. Thanks for the setup, Dana. After the Marianne Barber debacle came the first and certainly most memorable of the many accusations against daycare workers that would form the beating heart of the panic, the McMartin Preschool case.
3: Up the road or down the road, I guess you could say in Manhattan Beach, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, a really old daycare in this pretty prosperous community where like all the matrons of the town sent their children while they did volunteer work. So the kids are all at this daycare called the McMartin Preschool. And it's run by this family. It was a family of Christian scientists, very well respected in the community, the McMartin family. Just for years and years, people have been sending their kids to this preschool. One day in nineteen eighty-three, a woman dropped her child off at this preschool and just literally dropped the child off. Didn't come in to introduce the child, just left the child, like in the parking lot or something, with a little note, a two and a half year old kid. The woman who ran the daycare, her name was Virginia McMartin, she was in her 70s at the time. She was a grandma. And she saw the little kid and she was pretty disturbed by this. How could somebody just leave their child like this unattended? But the mother came back, her name was Judy Johnson. The staff at the daycare, the preschool talked to her and felt sorry for her. They could see that she was having a rough time, she was going through a divorce, and they decided that they would allow this child to enroll.
1: So. Out of the kindness of their hearts, these caregivers turned the strange act of a mother in crisis into a positive. But unfortunately for the owners and staff of the school, Judy Johnson's issues didn't get any better. To once again quote the book,
0: That summer, Judy Johnson became preoccupied with the condition of her younger son's anus. What the fuck, Jesuit?
1: I'm sorry, but I- Do feel like I warned you.
3: Judy was very concerned about the fact that this little boy had some kind of a rash or an irritation in his genital area and his scrotum, And she kept putting medicine on it, like Sab or something or desitin or something like that. And it wasn't getting any better. And she took him to the doctor and they said, he's got some kind of an irritation. Maybe he picked it up from you. Do you have a yeast infection? So anyway, it wasn't getting any better. She was getting more and more distraught by this she really started suspecting somebody had done something to this child she thought maybe it's her ex or maybe it's somebody at the daycare and she starts questioning the child repeatedly and the child's genitals aren't getting any better and she finally takes him to a hospital in la that has a specialized unit to do exams for children who are suspected of having been sexually abused By then, Judy was saying that this young man who was the son of one of the daycare operators, Judy says, I think it was him, and the kid has this genital situation with irritation. And so the doctor said, well, the mother says that the child was anally abused by this teacher. And so they wrote that up as a report, and that's how that case started to snowball.
1: The book goes into some additional detail on how Judy eventually developed her idea that the rash was related to some sort of sexual abuse. Her suspicions were heightened when her son was running around pretending to give people invisible shots. Judy believed he had no experience with injections, so she pressed him over and over until finally getting him to admit that Ray,
0: one of the teachers at the McMartin preschool, a man whose colleagues and friends characterized him as a friendly, harmless drifter, whose job at McMartin was perhaps the first sign he was getting his life in order.
1: Yeah, so Judy pestered her son until he admitted that Ray took his temperature. That's it. But that's all Judy needed to conclude that the thermometer must have been Ray Buckley's penis. Now, unfortunately, we have to inform you that a doctor examined the boy and found none of the, and again, we hate to even make you have to contemplate this, obviously horrific physical trauma that would have occurred had a fully grown man penetrated a two-year-old boy. But nonetheless, the concerned, raving mother managed to make headway with the cops. And this is the point where the roller coaster fully left the rails. The cops sent out letters to 200 or so parents asking them to question their kids about any signs of sexual abuse of the kind that Johnson had woven out of her bizarre and disturbing fantasies. Naturally, a bunch of these parents fucking freaked out and began questioning their kids relentlessly, determined to figure out if they had been subject to similar horrors. Most kids denied at first, but under sustained, repeated parental questioning, they eventually confirmed and then elaborated on the tales of terror. But of course, this is where the problem came in. The initial denials were ignored, and the children were pressed until they came up with something. And then between the parents' harping and the kids' fertile imaginations, those seeds of confirmation turned into elaborate Baroque tales of pure terror, scenes that were unimaginable because they didn't happen.
3: The police put out a letter saying, ask your children whether Ray, whether he's done anything, whether he's, you know, hurt them, molested them, whatever they said. A panic just started immediately. And it's always like this. It happened in every case back then. The parents start panicking. They start calling each other up. They start having meetings, which the DA's office often, or the police and the social workers help organize, and they all start sharing allegations. And as soon as the parents start to ask their children, hey, did this happen to you? They have heard at the meetings that the child was going to deny it at first because they're terrified, so you need to ask them over and over by the early winter of 84. It had really gone into the satanic ritual abuse material and everybody was talking about that. And I was lucky enough to look at some of the mother's diaries that they were told to keep diaries of the progression of their children's allegations and you see in these diaries a younger child in the family makes an allegation and then that child gets a whole lot of attention because that child has been terribly traumatized and needs lots of love and attention from the parents. And then like the child in the family who is a year older who also went to the school who has nothing to say and can't remember anything starts really getting upset because they're not being paid attention to. And so eventually they start talking about it. In the McMartin case, for the vast majority of the kids, by the time they got into that interview situation, they'd already been talked to so many times by their parents and by other people in the community informally. And so you can't really trace back what happened. But this happened, I mean, literally in every case that I looked at.
1: Those interviews with childcare professionals, people who were supposed to be uniquely suited to handling these kinds of discussions with children, sound downright terrifying. Quoting the book
0: The staff held their sessions with the children in a cheerily painted room overflowing with juvenile furniture and toys. To put the children at ease, the women dressed clown like in mismatched clothes and multicolored stockings and sat on the floor with the youngsters.
2: there, boys and girls. I'm Patty, the Anti-Pedophilia Clown. I need to talk to you about some scary stuff that we think happened to each and every one of you at school. Can I sit down there with you?
0: Well, we were kind of playing with blocks here. Oh, well, then I guess you're just gonna sit down anyway? They talked in gentle, high-pitched voices and encouraged discussion about genitals and sexual behavior that the young children hardly knew words for.
2: You know, sometimes when somebody does a bad touch on you, it can make your little penis or vagina feel all yucky. Did anybody ever do that to you? Hey, uh,
0: I know I'm only three over here, but shouldn't somebody call the police on this lunatic? And they used a new diagnostic device, anatomically correct dolls, which came with breasts, vaginas, penises, anuses, and pubic hair.
2: Cat got your tongue? Well, me, Billy. (laughs) Hi there, kids. Can we be friends? Billy here knows it's not embarrassing at all to talk about our private parts, so we can help the police arrest and prosecute your teachers based solely on your coerced testimony. Isn't that right, Billy? It sure is, Patty. Why, if you'll help me out, I can take off my pants and- See, everybody? That thing there is my penis. But I'm all grown up, so I've got hair all around there. Sally, have you ever seen a penis like that? Don't be shy. Now, if you'll bend me over, Patty. Yuck, yuck, all the kids can see I have an anus where my poop comes out. It's just like their anuses, only sometimes Grown-ups try to put something up there. Did any of you kids have something like that happen?
0: The children were instructed that if they were too scared or embarrassed to describe their secrets, characters like Mr. Snake or Mr. Alligator could speak for them. The CIA interviewers told the children that feeding details about the abuse into a secret machine, a microphone connected to a videotape recording machine, would dispose of the secrets forever and make the child feel much better. Jesus, lady, you're scaring the shit out of us. Well,
2: maybe if everybody talks to the secret machine, this can all be over. The staff...
1: Okay, we're sure it wasn't as bad as that sketch just implied, but it's easy to see how the insistence by supposedly responsible and, again, often very well-intentioned adults could lead to kids with strong imaginations conjuring up just the sorts of scenarios the adults seem to be asking for. What was the effect? The author's quote from one session with an eight-year-old who started the interview with no memories of abuse. The interviewer, that is, the adult in the room, said the following.
0: We had a big meeting the other day with all the mommies and the daddies. They all talked, and they said, boy, are our kids brave. And some of them said, my kid didn't tell any secrets. And I said, I know, I'm sorry, but I think they will. And they said, we don't know if Keith has a good enough memory, but maybe the puppets do.
1: After this, young Keith insisted he had a good enough memory, and soon he was telling stories about being sodomized as the adults supposedly abusing him made pornography of his supposed abuse. Again, prior to this interview, there's no indication the boy had ever claimed to have been abused. But it's a sure bet that afterward, the memories that had been implanted by the interrogation process were as real to him as any others. And so the accusations began flying. Ray, the first employee who was accused, was later said to have tortured and killed various pets, quote, while dressed as a clown, fireman, policeman, Santa Claus, and clergyman.
0: And nobody involved in the prosecution thought at least some of this testimony was insane?
1: Maybe they did, but they seemed to have kept any reservations they had quiet for the sake of the overall prosecution. Speaking of which, the case eventually made its way to the DA, who was in a tough re-election fight, and who immediately latched onto this high-profile mess as a way to shore up his law and order bona fides with a bunch of terrified parent voters. Meanwhile, Judy Johnson, the original typhoid Mary of this particular paranoid strain, kept coming up with stranger and more impossible accusations— The book provides a transcript of what she claims were notes she took down while interrogating her barely verbal three-year-old about his horrific experiences.
0: Matthew feels that he left L.A. International in an airplane and flew to Palm Springs. Matthew went to the armory. The goat man was there. It was a ritual-type atmosphere. At the church, Peggy drilled a child under the armpits. Atmosphere was that of magic arts. Ray flew in the air. Peggy, Babe, and Betty were all dressed up as witches. The person who buried Matthew is Miss Betty. There were no holes in the coffin. Babs went with him on a train with an older girl where he was hurt by men in suits. Ray waved goodbye. Peggy gave Matthew an enema. Staples were put in Matthew's ears, his nipples, and his tongue. Babs put scissors in his eyes. She chopped up animals. Matthew was hurt by a lion. An elephant played. A goat climbed up higher and higher and higher, then a bad man threw it down the stairs. Lots of candles were there, they were all black. Ray pricked his pointer finger, put it in the goat's anus. Old grandma played the piano. A baby's head was chopped off and the brains were burned. Peggy had a scissors in the church and she cut Matthew's hair. Matthew had to drink the baby's blood. Ray wanted Matthew spit.
1: I assume I hardly need bother noting there was no sign whatsoever of any of this, including the staples that had supposedly festooned young Matthew's body.
0: Nor that the, again, barely verbal Matthew ever said any of what his mother reported.
1: The authors note that this kind of word salad, which we were surprised to learn is the actual clinical term, would under normal circumstances certainly have led mental health and law enforcement authorities to conclude the person providing the testimony was delusional. Instead, the prosecution continued to leverage, if not these wild fantasies, at least Johnson's and her son's initial claims as part of their case. Incidentally, the fact that eventually all of these extremely damning videos and transcripts of poorly executed interrogations and bizarre fantasy accusations kept coming out, eventually police and prosecutors stopped keeping or sharing records of any of these scenarios arguing that they were doing so to protect the kids, even though what they were obviously doing was trying to protect themselves from embarrassment at prosecuting on such transparently bizarre evidence. The preschool cases were not the only scenarios where well-meaning adults used various techniques that inadvertently put, put words in the mouths of those who couldn't possibly have formulated those ideas on their own. In our interview, Ms. Nathan talked about the parallels between child sex abuse recovered memories and a later phenomenon in which patients who were previously unable to communicate at all were suddenly able to do so fluently when assisted by a helper.
3: It does seem like there are certain people in certain circumstances, and children would be one population for sure, where if they're pressured, they almost become like Ouija boards for the will of the person who is directing them to tell a story. Everyone knows how Ouija boards work, right? You have your planchette, you know, and it starts moving around on a board, and it starts making words, and it seems like something very supernatural, but everybody who studied this just says, it's underneath your consciousness. You're just communicating stuff that's coming out of your own mind. With facilitated communication, which is very popular in the late 80s, early 90s, with severely autistic children, there was a kind of a theory that developed in autistic treatment that the child really just has a problem verbalizing you know they can't use their voice and so but i mean their minds are completely intact and they're just all there they're connected to reality to the outside world but they just can't communicate and so if you can bypass the verbal stuff like speech uh and put their fingers on a keyboard and have somebody then of course you know a lot of times their hands are just not coordinated enough to do that but if you have somebody holding their hands or putting their hand on top of the child's hand or the the autistic person's hand, then uh, you'll have communication. And so what happened was a lot of people who had someone's hand on top of them, helping them, and turned out to be incredibly articulate. I mean, they were writing poetry, they were writing essays, there were children in grade school and high school that were taking philosophy classes and just doing great. I mean, whatever the class was, math, you know, English, they were completely verbal as long as somebody was holding their hand on top of the, of the keyboard. And it just seemed miraculous, and everybody was so excited because it seemed like autistic people really weren't as handicapped as had been thought. Then there were some autistic people who started accusing their parents of being satanic ritual abusers. And so then that led to investigations of the parents and of criminal charges, I believe. And so then, of course, it became very important to know what is going on here. Like, where are these verbalizations coming from? And there are experiments were done that showed very clearly that the person who was producing these verbalizations wasn't the autistic person. It was the person that was manipulating the keyboard on top of the fingers of the autistic person. And so that's very analogous to what happened with the children in these satanic ritual abuse cases. They became these um, sort of channels for someone else's ideas, someone else's thoughts, even though the person that was transmitting that, those thoughts didn't really know what they were doing. It wasn't malicious. I think it's really important to point that out.
1: So what actually happened with this case? Well, initially, seven people were arrested and charged with 115 separate crimes. Five of the accused had the charges against them dismissed before trial by a new district attorney. One of the others was acquitted at trial, and Ray was eventually acquitted of most charges and had a hung jury for the rest. The case against him was eventually dismissed. After years and a huge public firestorm, not one person was convicted of a single charge.
0: Holy shit.
1: Yeah. And before we leave this particular story, we want to take a moment to note an interesting piece of after-the-fact fact-checking Debbie Nathan performed years later. Because it's a simple revelation that explains one of the strange, previously unresolved aspects of the story.
3: Any of the skeptics, any of the reporters, myself included, we could never figure out what the etiology or the cause of that rash was. I mean, she didn't imagine that rash or that irritation on that little boy. It was always the unanswered question. That's called the index. That's what started the case. Five or six years ago, I decided to go through the medical records again because, you know, as you might have guessed, there's been a lot of progress in pediatric medicine of how to evaluate and diagnose these signs and symptoms that used to be considered evidence of sexual abuse that turned out to be something much more benign in children. I dug them out again. I still have them archived. And I saw that this child, when he had been brought in, had a certain kind of strep that was cultured from his anus, and it turns out that since about the late 1990s, there was this explosion of research that found that it's very common for kids that age, particularly boys, to have this thing called a pediatric strep dermatitis. So it's a strep. It's not a fungus. It doesn't respond to antifungals. It doesn't respond to desiccant you know, you have to give the children antibiotics. It's as simple as that. It was just staring at me in the face. You have to remember that this case started in 1983, and this new research didn't come about until 17 years later, at least. And so that seems to be what caused this. And it's not anybody's fault, but the thing is it became pretty obvious really quickly that the mom was very mentally ill and started accusing everyone and everything and started having all of these ideations that she would take to the DA's office about all the teachers, including the old ladies, flying the children hundreds of miles away on airplanes and pulling goats and, and just all kinds of rituals. And uh, the DA's office would just be like kind of on the one hand laughing about them and on the other hand doing nothing about them to stop this case. Because it was a very politically singling case, which is a whole other story. People were making their political careers
1: out of this case.
0: Fascinating. But back to the acquittals. Hopefully seeing the results of the highest profile case took the wind out of the panic?
1: Not really. The wave of panic prosecutions spread across the country, affecting one community after another. Justin Sledge helps us understand one of the main reasons why.
2: What's also really important to note about Michelle remembers is that this book was already being shopped around as a bestseller. The psychiatrist that was going to publish it, her story was told in, like, I think, Life magazine, the kind of magazine you would see at like the front of a supermarket. Even before the book dropped, he was offered hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Ford to the, the hardcover and the softback. Everyone knew this was going to be a, a bestseller, and it was. And what ends up happening was that in the exact neighborhood where allegedly this abuse happened in the fifties, there was an anonymous tip line that you could call in to report child abuse. And someone called in on the tip line and said, Satan is going to kidnap babies from maternity wards and sacrifice them on Halloween or something. Typically, right, in a child abuse hotline, if someone called in and said something like that, no one would take it seriously because it sounds completely crazy because it is completely crazy. But after Michelle Remembers was published, it didn't seem crazy anymore And sure enough, the media got a hold of it. There were police posted outside maternity wards. They found some dead animals in the forest nearby. And it went from there. And so once it happens in one town, well, if it's a giant network of satanic conspiracies all over the country, well, they're going to strike anywhere. And you begin to see this virus spread first into Canada. It actually begins in Canada. And then slowly from the Pacific Northwest begins to spread rapidly really takes root in the East Coast, then spreads throughout the rest of the United States and eventually hops upon and has a big impact in the UK as well. So it spread rapidly. And Michelle Rembridge really is the text that jumped it off. That recovered memory stuff was really beta tested during the whole UFO wave of the 70s, where people allegedly were kidnapped by aliens. And the psychiatrists involved in all this basically did the process of implanting memories through hypnosis and other things. This is what I call conspiratorial comorbidity. You never get just one conspiracy theory. You almost always get some kind of comorbidity when it comes to these things. And I think that lurking in the background, the imagery of aliens kidnapping people and doing these terrible experiments on them is also tied back to medieval demonology and things like that. That so much of that mental landscape is so tied to demonological literature and things like that, that it's not surprising that these cases of recovered memory being beta tested during the ufo craze really of the 70s is also going to be instrumental in this whole uh, satanic panic business
1: so as he noted there was nothing particularly new about recovered memories since they had played such an important role in for example the burgeoning ufo movement but it's another point he made that we want to focus in on the role of the media